GRNE Solar. This. This. This is What's Up. Welcome these guys on both two experts in the field of community solar. So why don't we just give you guys an introduction for yourself, who you are, what you do, where you operate out of. Eric, we can start with you. Yeah, Eric Posse with IPS Solar. We're a development and construction company based out of Minnesota, but are active in the Midwest market. I've been with the company since 2007. We've been in existence since 1991. And now almost uh, primarily focused on community solar and commercial and industrial solar. Um, and my day-to-day operations revolve around developing markets and subscription acquisition, project development. Very nice. And John, go ahead. Sure, thanks. Uh, my name is John Kinch. I'm the Executive Director of Michigan Energy Options. We're a 40-year-old nonprofit in, obviously, the state of Michigan. And we have been primarily for probably 30 years of our career focused mostly on the energy efficiency side of things. But about a decade ago, we got kind of more busy with some of the, the solar opportunities in the state. Um, most germane to this conversation today, we've brought in line so far two community solar parks in the state of Michigan, one of which through an LLC, we actually own and operate. And we're really a, a large proponent of not only doing those community solar type projects, but also whenever possible, locating those on marginal lands and bringing some other value added to the projects to make the community very pleased and proud to have such a renewable energy asset with them. Yeah, and I think that's a huge part of community solar, too, that we're seeing is that it, it does take a lot of land that sometimes can't be developed and uh, becomes what was considered an eyesore into something beautiful and energy generating. You're doing a great job, actually, of leading segues, so we'll touch on a little bit marginal land and then uh, subscribers. Uh, a little bit further down the line, I feel be remiss if we didn't start with just what is community solar uh, in general, because I know here GRNE is operating in Illinois where our community solar market is just starting up right now. You know, we had a large procurement go out for community solar projects, and there's not really many of them installed. So, Eric, I think you know, you're doing primarily community solars. Absolutely. Community solar uh, is a program that's typically derived at the state level and at the utility level that allows for ratepayers to subscribe to solar projects that aren't necessarily located on their property. And so this really helps for homeowners that, that don't have the right solar access, businesses that are leasing space and don't have control of their own roofs that want to participate in solar. To date, uh, there are over 20 uh, states that have community solar legislation that's enabled and uh, many uh, utilities, many more utilities that are participating have their own, own programs. So that from a high level is kind of how community solar operates. Typically, there is a project owner um, that is independent from subscribers, but it doesn't necessarily need to be independent from subscribers. Um, a developer who uh, goes out, finds sites, works to permit them and, and, and make the help those projects through the interconnection process. And um, so subscribers uh, typically on a monthly basis are paying back a portion of the bill credit savings that they realize on their utility bills. And so kind of a good example would be one project, you may have five uh, to uh, 100 subscribers proportionate to their share. So if somebody had a 10% share in a community solar project, um, they would receive 10% of the bill credits in any given month. Project owner would then turn around and invoice for a portion of those savings and 
Uh, in many cases, that might be 90% of the, the projects or of the, uh, the bill credit, and that goes to pay for the upfront cost to install the equipment, as well as ongoing operations and maintenance. So gotcha. from a high level, uh, high level, that's kind of how things operate. And uh, of course, each state and utility has their own wrinkles um, to, to their programs, but um, as a whole, that's, that's kind of how, how, how it works. That's a great overview that Eric is providing. I might add a couple of things to it. Um, I think of community solar as a response to a market failure. And that market failure is, you know, we've looked at some DOE reports over the years and suggest, especially east of the Mississippi, where Michigan is and part of Minnesota and all of Illinois, uh, that there's as much as 80% of homes don't qualify for community solar because they're not facing the right direction, their roofs, they're perhaps renters, um, they may have an old roof. And about 40% of commercial businesses may not be good candidates for rooftop solar. And so I'm always wanting to be clear that community solar is not um, an alternative to the utility scale solar, the large megawatt projects we are seeing more and more of in our communities. It really is a response to rooftop. And I'm all for all the projects. I'm for, you know, rooftop, community, and utility scale. But it really is a way for people who otherwise wouldn't be able to take part in having renewable energy can be a part of that solution. Yeah, I think that's actually a really great point. I love how you phrase that as kind of a market failure because I know what we see a lot, especially around in the Chicagoland area, is that I get a lot of people calling me every single day who live in apartment buildings and they want to take advantage of solar. And, you know, for one reason or another, maybe their apartment, you know, they don't own the building so they can't put it on the roof or it's just not enough for everybody. I imagine that's, you know, in, in your respective states, a lot of what you get is people who do live in multifamily homes or even, you know, nonprofits that are just, they don't have the land available for it. Uh, you know, they can subscribe to it and basically turn into a third-party energy supplier, right? Right. That's what Eric was saying as well. It's also the idea that you can kind of dip your toe in the water and have a modest amount of a share of a community solar project, such as 10%. Or you could be, in case of Minnesota, you could have as much as you know, 40% of the project could be an anchor tenant. So it really allows as well for, I think, kind of a democratization of solar. It's a great way for kind of everybody to get into it. So question that I have is that, you know, in, in a typical subscriber, you know, type market, Market, what is the demand that you see for, like, let's say a, a new solar farm opens up? And, or do you see people kind of clamoring to get in there, or is there a one farm opens up for a particular small location? Yeah, I think that that, this is Eric, uh, I, I think that that really uh, depends on the market, right? So, and, and the timing of when the market's open. So, for instance, in Minnesota, at the beginning, at the outset, obviously, there is a lot of interest. Um, there is a a nuance in, in Minnesota that a subscriber needs to be located either within the county uh, that the community solar garden is located or in an adjacent county. And so that really restricts, um, I think, the ability for subscribers to participate in certain projects uh, simply based on, you know, kind of the geographic uh, makeup of, of a particular state. And so um, here we have subscribers in, in St. Paul, Minnesota, which is located in Ramsey County, where the utility territory is, there's just not a lot of access for, for projects. And so there's a high demand for subscribers, a lot more subscribers that are, are looking for projects and are projects available in that area. But when you I think look at it 
from you know a larger perspective, uh, certainly as time goes on, more part participating uh, early adopters, people that are really interested in community solar, start to join those projects. That there, you know, naturally is a lack of of demand as as time moves forward, and and people have already subscribed to projects, and so we're seeing uh, a bit of that as well. So, it it really depends on how the the market is established and um, as far as who's uh, available or willing to participate. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, John, what, what's the pulse on community solar in, in Michigan? Is it different even? I guess that's a better question from how uh, Eric's describing it. Yeah, let me let me make two comments to that. One is that Eric, I agree with him that it's kind of a science and art in lining up the customers, getting a location that works, uh, depending whose service territory you're on and all kinds of other factors. We've seen in Michigan you know, that same sort of initial interest among the early adopters, the innovators. But I think that early majority and late majority, so to speak, are not here yet, as far as um, mm-hmm. we can tell in terms of the market. It still seems a little bit soft. And part of the challenge, I think, is not to, once people understand what it is, they kind of like it. One, a big challenge for folks is that um, certain community solar models, two of which we've used ourselves, requires upfront capital in full for people to buy into the system or lease into the system. And I always use the analogy that if your local utility was coming to you and saying, you would like you to pay 25 years of your utility bills tomorrow, you'd have a hard time doing that, right? So you know, one of the problems with um, community solar is, is to getting that initial investment from participants, and, uh, you know, and, and that's hard for people to do sometimes. Sometimes they will want to do more but can't. Yeah, absolutely. One of the big questions that's coming out of community solar is how are developers going to be getting subscribers to it? So what is the process? Walk us through that, John, what the process is like for subscribers, and are there different methods like an upfront payment, or is there you know, a pay-as-you-go type of thing? There is. There, there are different methods, and, and actually you prompted me to remember the second point I was going to make is that we don't have any enabling legislation in the state of Michigan yet. We're working on that. That has a particular carve-out for community solar like you have in Minnesota, like you have in Illinois, and we, and we need that. We need to make that uh, happen in the next couple of years to make a distinction between what community solar is and is not, put some working definitions around it, put some expectations uh, of the utilities and of the participants of what they can see in terms of their financial investment and their payback. So I'm hoping with some good friends like Boat Solar and others, we can get that kind of thing to happen. I think um, what I would say is that the subscription approach, the the consumer engagement approach is what we've done at least is we've really um, worked both with utilities and communities to use those as hubs to reach out to those customers they already have in the case of utilities or in the case of the cities, reaching out to those constituents, those residents, those businesses that are already there. And by having those two partners, it helps to elevate the project because, well, people may not like their utility necessarily, all that much. They might, um, but at least they know who they are and they trust them. And even though Michigan Energy Options has been around for 40 years and doing good work, you know, we're not necessarily a household name throughout the whole state. So I think it's important to make sure you have good partners that are local partners to help the project going so you can get the, uh, the visibility of it up. But it's a lot of churn to try to get people to get interested, sign up, send you money, stay with the project. It, it can be a challenge. Now, that's one model in which, you know, it's an upfront, our model leases an upfront payment for as much as you want of the project. Another model, which is one of the utilities in Michigan uses, is more of a kind of pay-as-you-go. It's essentially a premium price on your utility bill. And you're allowed, you're then at that point, you're, you're bought into uh, a community solar project of some, of some consequence. The debate, I think, in the industry is whether or not a community solar project really needs to have a payback. In other words, at, you know, 10, 11 years out into the project, your money is recouped in your energy savings, and thus you're getting free green electrons 
going forward. Mm-hmm. But it'd be interesting to hear Eric what his experiences have been in Minnesota in comparison. What I think from the outset had been a very popular idea of ownership of these projects, actually staying within the community, subscribers paying uh, and and participating in the capital stack to get these projects off the ground. Um, what what has happened, and and I think a lot of the the regulated states, including you know Minnesota, obviously, and and early states like uh, Colorado, is, is that we, the issues that we ra- run into are related to the subscribers being able to, to, to come up with that capital and to be able to finance projects and then issues related to SEC and, um, and investment opportunities and who's considered to be a qualified uh, investor in these types of projects. And so rather than go, going through the brain damage, um, what most developers have done is to think about these projects as a typical commercial uh, installation and commercial solar financing where go out and and work with a third-party investor who can capitalize on the tax incentives. And so 99% of the projects in Minnesota are done via a pay-as-you-go model where the subscribers have no upfront liability to to pay for the the installation of the of the project. Now, um, there are some developers out there that have really interesting models, including a developer named um, Cooperative Energy Futures, and I'll throw a plug out there for them. Um, they're really trying to you know, figure out uh, ways in, in order to keep ownership of these projects within communities that where they are uh, developing. So there, uh, there's one really interesting uh, project in North Minneapolis at a church, um, Shiloh Temple, where uh, it's a 200 kilowatt system and all of the subscribers have an ownership stake where you know there's a financing period and then at the end of the financing period once the system has been fully paid off 100 percent of the benefits of that project are going to flow to the subscribers and i think that that's really a pioneering you know approach to uh, community solar Um, they also have a very vested and and uh, high focus on equity both environmental justice and, and racial equity and making sure that you know the the subscribers aren't limited uh, by credit score or um, you know other uh, kind of factors, and so I think we're going to see a ton more uh, in that space. You know, you can kind of see it with some of the the leanings and, and uh, I think issues that have been raised by the Green New Deal from a national level, making sure that there's inclusion, and a, a lot of states are trying to address that with community solar. Uh, and making sure that there are carve-outs for uh, low-income subscribers, for instance. Um, I think yeah. that I think that Illinois is really interesting. We're we're doing about uh, 15 megawatts of projects in uh, this kind of first round of of community solar down there. And uh, the the approach that they've chosen is to incentivize re- uh, with a carrot rather than um, kind of using a, a stick approach. Uh, to giving a higher rec value for high subscription or, or you know, 75% or 50% or more of subscriptions going to, to residents. Um, and, and then also, you know, their, their solar for all program, which, which incentivizes access for low income communities. So I, I think that um, we're, we're still, this is obviously a, a continuous, continuously evolving space. Uh, we'll see new um, business model innovations. And, and I think that a lot of that is going to be centered around, uh, equity, uh, inclusion, and um, kind of small subscriptions. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I completely that's, that's agree. That's a trend that's, that's coming. I, I think what that ends up making it happen is that when everybody has a stake in it, it becomes more of a, a microgrid type of situation where people are all pooling their money to 
invest in something for themselves rather than simply the subscription offering a third party you know, type of, of feel to it. I know we have a lot of that here where we have a deregulated market and you're able to you know, go really anywhere and everybody offers something different for it. Um, one question that I, I do have, because it's kind of one of the myths that it goes around um, or you know, one of the, the, the hearsay, I guess you could call it, happens around here is that some of what we've heard about community solar is that potentially people that are subscribing to it may not be seeing massive savings you know, on their utility. Walk me through, like, let's say I'm a homeowner and I sign up and I subscribe for community solar. You know, what does my payment look like? What, are, what does my savings look like? Yeah, so uh, from a homeowner standpoint, um, usually it's, it's a pretty simple offer. It's, it's typically a percentage discount to the, the bill credit that they're receiving, or it's you know a penny discount or, or a penny and a half. That can get much more complicated in kind of deregulated states, and, and we're, we've run into that in Illinois, where the bill credit value is derived from um, who supplies energy to to that particular resident. It's just very you know very complicated. So I think as that market unfolds, we'll see you know what some of the pitfalls that that some uh, subscribers are, are are seeing. In in Minnesota, we which we've done uh, 100 megawatts of community solar in, in Minnesota that we've developed. Um, nearly all of that has been commercial focused, and so we've worked with a, a lot of school districts municipalities, businesses, et cetera. I think one the, the real challenge comes at the beginning. And so once once a subscriber signs their agreement, it can be anywhere from six to twelve to eighteen months before they start to see bill credits. Um, and then the way that the, the program is structured, uh, and that's usually just based on kind of the construction cycle and where uh, we are at in, in the development. Um, uh, timeline. Mm -hmm. But, you know, once the project is turned on, there's even a lag of, of one month from the utility before they start to accumulate bill credits at that particular project. And then there's a one month lag until they actually see those credits on their bill. And then often at the beginning, there are discrepancies between what has been produced, um, you know, at the site um, and what we predicted and then what uh, Excel or the utility is actually providing in, in terms of value. And so there, there are some disconnects and, and kind of growing pains at the beginning that um, I think that, you know, we all hope for kind of a smooth takeoff, but it's, it's often a, a little bit bumpier um, than I think most of the stakeholders uh, would, would hope for. And, and so, you know, it's just working through those early issues and, and by no means would we be unique or, or uh, you know, our state be unique to that. I think that there's challenges um, that, that go along with rolling out programs uh, all across the country. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, John, I want to jump back to you for a second. You know, we talked a little bit about subscribers. So when you're gaining subscribers and you're signing people up for this, is that kind of thing that's happening all in-house? Well, in our case, we we did it all in-house from soup to nuts for whatever reason. I, I've since learned, of course, there are companies that specialize in acquisition for community solar customers and have um, that machine kind of created. But we really we really did it all ourselves from the ground up and built it. And, um, you know, we've been managing our, our customers like we manage other utility customers that we work with. One of our, couple of our large contracts are actually white-labeled doing energy efficiency work, which is mandated by state law for the utilities. So we have a good re reputation and relationship with utilities. We kind of know how they think and work, and we understand how you have to be very careful about private data of customers and all that. So we just kind of modified some of that work we had already been doing and put that to, this, to the solar park that we own and operate. We're also, for yeah. what it's worth, 
uh, through an LLC, we own and operate the um, project. And then my nonprofit is also the operation and maintenance company on this project, in part because we wanted to be responsible for it and make sure that it's working right. And we've been around for 40 years. We intend to be around for at least as long as the solar park is going to be in operation, which is 25. And I think there's some benefit to having, this is a shameless plug, but I think there's some benefit to having nonprofits involved with some of this kind of work. It kind of fits in our wheelhouse. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of what Community Solar is geared to also is nonprofit low income. So I, I completely agree with you. What do you think some of the growing pains were when it came to figuring out how to do subscribers? Well, people had never seen it in Michigan, really. There was one small project up north near where I'm now today, but for the most part, people hadn't really heard of it, so you had to kind of do a lot of education. Um, there was also, to a certain extent, when we were bringing people online for the project, there was some skepticism that, you know, that it would get built, that it would happen for some delays, some other reasons that we ran into, so we had to kind of overcome that. We had some people saying, I would love to participate in this community solar park, but I'm going to do so once it's turned on. I'm not going to give you my money ahead at a time. And our particular model was one that required about 80% of the money to be an escrow account. So then that would trigger the tax equity investor and that would trigger the capital stack so we could build it. And so we found ourselves, you know, kind of caught betwixt and between because we had people who had given us their money we were sitting on and others who said they would be happy to buy into the project once it was up and running. So that was an unintended challenge to us, but we overcame it. Mm -hmm. So Eric, I would pose the same question to you. Yeah, and we're we're a smaller organization and really what our experience had been up up until uh, the point at which we started to develop community solar projects, which was probably 2014 timeframe, had really been geared towards commercial uh, right before that. And so we had a team that was specialized in working with school districts and municipalities uh, and, and other businesses already. And so it was a, it was a natural pivot or trans, uh, transition to saying, hey, we did, you know, 40 kilowatts on your roof or we did a couple hundred kilowatts. You know, that's only providing 10% of your load. And now there's an opportunity with this new program called Community Solar to do much more. And so it was, I think, you know, for us building that trust, we were a local company to Minnesota, um, building building trust with our with our customers and, and then offering kind of a, a pathway to doing more than what their roof would allow. And so... Mm-hmm. Uh, that was that was those were easy conversations to have with uh, commercial clients. On the residential side, um, it, it's a it's a lot harder, right? Uh, subscription acquisition costs per watt uh, are just are just higher. I mean, you have to have uh, many more conversations. Uh, marketing costs uh, go go up, and so it's a different different ballgame. And, and so there are there are companies obviously that are specializing in doing that acquisition work and and i think that there's ways to to leverage and uh you know that those business models in ways that it's 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 more difficult to do on commercial acquisition side and so i I think that there are are plenty of you know businesses uh, and companies out there that that do this work that have proven their their business models and you know we are, we would be working with with groups like that in areas that that have high uh, residential participation like an like Illinois um, right. to help us with subscription acquisition because it is it is a different ballgame. Uh, Eric's right that uh, you know our our one of our projects it's only a 345 kilowatt system when I say only but it's taking it's a thousand panels it's two acres so it's right. <laughs> Physically, it's pretty pretty substantial, and we have 150 subscribers. I mean, most of those subscribers are residential customers. Mm-hmm. However, 
by far, there's a few real large commercial industrial, mostly commercial industrial um, customers that are taking, you know, some big chunks out of that project. And I think that reflects really how electricity is used in all of our communities. It tends to be the public institutions and the commercial industrials as a larger customer. So I, I'm fine with the model of having those kind of mixed in together. I think that, mm-hmm. that works for me. I think it also helps, like with Minnesota, I think it also helps to uh, reduce the risk of a project going forward in the sense if you have an anchor tenant established and then you only have to backfill so much to make the project whole. Right, right, absolutely. Talking a little bit about those, those commercial clients or subscribers there, Eric, did you get any kind of pushback from them to say, like, if they can do say a 10% offset by installing rooftop solar, that they weren't wanting to do more because of a little bit of reduced savings they'd be seeing? Yeah, I think the, the conversation is harder, especially because a typical contract term is 25 years. And, um, you know, that, that obviously differs from state to state and, and program to program. But a 25-year agreement, nobody knows what the energy landscape is going to look like in 25 years, let alone... Uh, 10 years from now, and to, for people to take that leap of faith uh, is a considerable ask, and I think that th- that's probably the, the, the largest hurdle. Um, the, other, the other part to it, too, and, and we get some nuance uh, here, is, is that we, we may be uh, midlife on a roof, and, and um, the program restricts your ability to participate in either on-site or, or community solar um, to 120% of your, your usage. And so we have seen groups you know, withhold a portion of their, of their community solar commitment in anticipation that, that they'll install on-site solar in the future. And, and I think that that's a smart approach um, for, for organizations as well. Uh, and and it, it's not, you know, it's not going to be the right fit at the right time. We also just need groups to say, hey, we only want to, um, you know, commit 25% to community solar um, because that gives us options in the future. We're not, we're not kind of, you know, pigeonholing ourselves to, to, to participate in this project or program for uh, the long term. So I, I think there's, there's a healthy amount of skepticism, uh, you know, within, within the program, and, and that's related to, you know, market dynamics and what the future holds. And, and um, we don't, I, I definitely don't, you know, hold that against any, anybody. Um, I think that, that hedging kind of your, your energy mix is, is probably a, a good thing. And um, we're happy to help find the right solution for, for those folks and, you know, whatever makes sense. I'll point to Michigan Energy Options ourselves. We are a lead platinum certified building. We got that in 2012, and we've had solar on in the site of our building for a lot of years. We also had, per the Community Solar Park, a number of panels donated to us from friends of Michigan Energy Options. So the combination thereof has us probably 80% now powered by solar. And they're different. And they're different animals. I mean, you know, the one on site, we've got inverters, and we've had inverters break. We've had some maintenance things we've had to, to do. We're very proud to have it there, but it isn't for everybody. And similarly, you know, the community solar park, even though it's about a mile away from us, you know, isn't something we look at every day, but we know it's there. And I think ideally it's a combination of those two things for businesses or residential that might really be kind of a sweet spot. Yeah, as long as it's yeah. enough that you, know, you could go by and see it, still be able to get the, uh, you know, kind of the warm fuzzies of, of having that extra power is, is kind of important for a lot of people, and I think it's a it's a big part of what makes community solar, you know, what it is. Yeah, in our one in our one project in East Lansing, you know, it has some 
value adds to it, including that we've got a nice um, sculpture of public art there. We have signage we're putting up that's educational signage. We'll have tours of the site for community members and students. And we're also planting pollinator species and native grasses on the site. So we're doing habitat restoration. And all this is located on a former cap landfill. So we're taking what was a true liability for the city of East Lansing and turning it into something that's an asset for the 21st century. And I think that's a good story. Mm -hmm. Eric, do you guys get a lot of brownfield and marginal land development with your community solar as well? You know, we we don't as much. Um, you, you know, I think we're markets where they're incentivizing, um, uh, you know, land use, you know, proper land land use. That you you'll see a lot more of it. And I'm I'm thinking maybe of uh, Massachusetts and, and some of these other states that have kind of brownfield uh, incentives. Um, but we certainly are talking with the landowners and, and, and identifying typically the, the area, if it's an eight acre or 40 acre spot, you know, the, the landowner is going to know, hey, you know, this area over here is pretty unproductive. Um, you know, it's a, it's a hay field or it's, it's uh, you know, marginal land. You know, I'd love to place this system over here. We work with them, their neighbors, um, to make sure that, uh, you know, everybody's considerations are, are coming into account when we cite these, these projects. And so sure. to the extent that they're, you know, maybe brownfields, but they, you know, we, we definitely try to, um, you know, be sensitive to, to, those, um, to those land use issues because it is something that, that suddenly comes up. Minnesota's a pioneer in the whole co-locating of solar with ag. You guys should yeah. about with, work with Fresh Energy and Rob Davis and some of these folks where, you know, if you are going to be building some solar projects in the land and it's, if it's prime agricultural land and you plant pollinators with it or graze sheep underneath it. In fact, Michigan taking its cue from Minnesota recently through an executive order from our governor is opening up some of our prime ag lands to potential solar development with the stipulation that that land is returned back to its original state once the project is over with 20 years down the road. And also um, strongly encouraging the location of pollinators with that, with those solar farms. So I think there's win-wins for everybody in these kinds of projects. Absolutely. Absolutely. Shout, shout out to uh, sh- shout out to Rob Davis for sure. I mean, he he's the pioneer in in how um, in in pollinator friendly habitat and um, uh, you know watch his TED talk. I mean, you won't see anybody more excited about uh, bees and solar than than him. And um, but yeah, uh, all of our community solar sites, which now I think we're approaching. Um, a thousand acres of sites, and um, all of them have have pollinator habitat planted beneath the panels. And and so, uh, I think you mentioned uh, too, John, that I think one of the next phases is, is sheep and, and you know other grazers, uh, probably not goats, who jump on the panels and crack them and whatever. But certainly, I think that that is a, a you know the next phase. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So we could definitely go back and forth a lot, every state, and are shouting on our governors and our, our lawmakers. But, you know, I'm getting the, the cue to be wrapping up here. So I want to thank you guys so much uh, for joining. We had a really great conversation, and we'd love to have you on again. Tell our listeners and everybody where they can find you. Yeah, so our website is ips-solar.com. Um, they can reach me on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash in slash Eric Posse, um, or on Twitter at Eric Posse, which is E-R-I-C-P-A-S-I. And love to talk with uh, anybody that, that's kind of sharing passion for renewables and, and community solar. And um, absolutely thank you, uh, Ryan and, and John, for the, for the conversation.
I want to echo um, Eric's appreciation. Thank you for having this. This has been a great conversation. Let's uh, continue with others. Um, you can find Michigan Energy Options web at michiganenergyoptions.org. You can also take a look at our uh, project website for the East Lansing Community Solar Park, and that is micommunitysolar.org. So there's a play on words there with Michigan and my. And, and then also you can find me through those sites as well because my email and contact information is all there. I love it. Well, yeah, again, thank you guys and all listeners out there. Make sure that you subscribe, rate, review, and uh, appreciate our two guests today at letting everybody know what's up with Community Solar. Thank you. Let the sun shine. Thank you. welcoming these guys on both two experts in the field of community solar. So why don't we just give you guys uh, an introduction for yourselves, who you are, what you do, where you operate out of. Eric, we can start with you. Yeah, Eric Posse with IPS Solar. We're a development and construction company based out of Minnesota, but are active in the uh, Midwest market. I've been with the company since 2007. We've been in existence since 1991. And now almost uh, primarily focused on community solar and commercial and industrial solar. Um, and my day-to-day operations revolve around developing markets and subscription acquisition, project development. Very nice. John, go ahead. Sure, thanks. Uh, my name is John Kinch. I'm the Executive Director of Michigan Energy Options. We're a 40-year-old nonprofit in, obviously, the state of Michigan. And we have been primarily for probably 30 years of our career focused mostly on the energy efficiency side of things. But about a decade ago, we got kind of more busy with some of the the solar opportunities in the state. Um, Most germane to this conversation today, we've brought in line so far two community solar parks in the state of Michigan, one of which through an LLC, we actually own and operate. And we're really a, a large proponent of not only doing those community solar type projects, but also whenever possible, locating those on marginal lands and bringing some other value added to the projects to make the community very pleased and proud to have such a renewable energy asset with them. Yeah, and I think that's a huge part of community solar, too, that we're seeing is that it, it does take a lot of land that sometimes can't be developed and uh, becomes what was considered an eyesore into something beautiful and energy generating. You're doing a great job, actually, at leading segues, so we'll touch on a little bit marginal land and then uh, subscribers. Uh, a little bit further down the line. I feel be remiss if we didn't start with just what is community solar uh, in general, because I know here GRNE is operating in Illinois where our community solar market is just starting up right now. We had a large procurement go out for community solar projects, and there's not really many of them installed. So, Eric, I think you're doing primarily community solars. Absolutely. Community solar uh, is a program that's typically derived at the state level and at the utility level that allows for ratepayers to subscribe to solar projects that aren't necessarily located on their property. And so this really helps for homeowners that, that don't have the right solar access, businesses that are leasing space and don't have control of their own roofs that want to participate in solar. To date, uh, there are over 20 uh, states that have community solar legislation that's enabled and uh, many uh, utilities, many more utilities that are participating have their own own programs. So 
that from a high level is kind of how community solar operates. Typically, there is a project owner um, that is independent from subscribers, but it doesn't necessarily need to be independent from subscribers. Um, a developer who uh, goes out, finds sites, works to permit them and, and, and make the help those projects through the interconnection process. And um, so subscribers, uh, typically on a monthly basis, are paying back a portion of the bill credit savings that they realize on their utility bills. And so kind of a good example would be one project, you may have five uh, to uh, 100 subscribers proportionate to their share. So if somebody had a 10% share in a community solar project, um, they would receive 10% of the bill credits in any given month. Project owner would then turn around and invoice for a uh, portion of those savings and uh, in many cases, that might be 90% of the, the project or of the, uh, the bill credit, and that goes to pay for the upfront cost to install the equipment, as well as ongoing operations and maintenance. So gotcha. from a high level, uh, high level, that's kind of how things operate. And uh, of course, each state and utility has their own wrinkles um, to, to their programs, but um, as a whole, that's, that's kind of how... How, how it works. Gotcha. That's a great overview that Eric is providing. I might add a couple of things to it. Um, I think of community solar as a response to a market failure. And that market failure is, you know, we've looked at some DOE reports over the years and suggest, especially east of the Mississippi, where Michigan is and part of Minnesota and all of Illinois, uh, that there's as much as 80% of homes don't qualify for community solar because they're not facing the right direction, their roofs, they're perhaps renters, uh, they may have an old roof. And about 40% of commercial businesses may not be good candidates for rooftop solar. And so I'm always wanting to be clear that community solar is not um, an alternative to the utility scale solar, the large megawatt projects we are seeing more and more in our communities. It really is a response to rooftop. And I'm all for all the projects. I'm for, you know, rooftop community and utility scale, but it really is a way for people who otherwise wouldn't be able to take part in having renewable energy can be a part of that solution. Yeah, I think that's actually a really great point. I love how you phrase that, that's kind of a market failure because I know what we see a lot, especially around in the Chicagoland area, is that I get a lot of people calling me every single day who live in apartment buildings and they want to take advantage of solar. And, you know, for one reason or another, maybe their apartment, you know, they don't own the building, so they can't put it on the roof or it's just not enough for everybody. I imagine that's, you know, in, in your respective states, a lot of what you get is people who do live in multifamily homes or even, you know, nonprofits that are just, they don't have the land available for it. Uh, you know, they can subscribe to it and basically turn into a third-party energy supplier, right? Right. Absolutely. What Eric was saying as well, it's also the idea that you can kind of dip your toe in the water and have a modest amount of a share of a community solar project, such as 10%. Or you could be, in case of Minnesota, you could have as much as you know, 40% of the project could be an anchor tenant. So it really allows as well for, I think, kind of a democratization of solar. It's a great way for kind of everybody to get into it. So question that I have is that, you know, in, in a typical subscriber, you know, type market, what is the demand that you see for, like, let's say a, a new solar farm opens up? Do you see people kind of clamoring to get in there, or is there a one farm opens up for a particular small location? Yeah, I think that that, this is Eric, uh, I, I think that that really uh, depends on the market, right? So, and, and the timing of when the market's open. So, for instance, in Minnesota, at the beginning, at the outset, obviously there was a lot of interest. Um, there, there is a a nuance in, in Minnesota that a subscriber needs to be located either within the county uh, that the community solar garden is located or in an adjacent 
county. And so that really restricts, um, I think, the ability for subscribers to participate in certain projects uh, simply based on, you know, kind of the geographic uh, makeup of, of a particular state. And so um, here we have subscribers in, in St. Paul, Minnesota, which is located in Ramsey County, where the utility territory is, there's just not a lot of access for, for projects. And so there's a high demand for subscribers, a lot more subscribers that are, are looking for projects and are projects available in that area. But when you, I think, look at it from you know, a larger perspective, uh, certainly as time goes on, more part participating uh, early adopters, people that are really interested in community solar start to join those projects that there, you know, naturally is a lack of, of demand as, as time moves forward and, and people have already subscribed to projects. And so we're seeing uh, a bit of that as well. So it, it really depends on how the, the market is established and um, as far as who's uh, available or willing to participate. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, John, what, what's the pulse on community solar in, in Michigan? Is it different even? I guess that's a better question from how uh, Eric's describing it. Yeah, let me let me make two comments to that. One is that, Eric, I agree with him that it's kind of a science and art in lining up the customers, getting a location that works, uh, depending whose service territory you're on and all kinds of other factors. We've seen in Michigan you know, that same sort of initial interest among the early adopters, the innovators. But I think that early majority and late majority, so to speak, are not here yet, as far as um, mm -hmm. we can tell in terms of the market. It still seems a little bit soft. And part of the challenge, I think, is not to, once people understand what it is, they kind of like it. One, a big challenge for folks is that um, certain community solar models, two of which we've used ourselves, requires upfront capital in full for people to buy into the system or lease into the system. And I always use the analogy that if your local utility was coming to you and saying, you, we'd like you to pay 25 years of your utility bills tomorrow, you'd have a hard time doing that, right? So you know, yeah. one of the problems with um, community solar is, is to getting that initial investment from participants, and, uh, you know, and, and that's hard for people to do sometimes. Sometimes they will want to do more but can't. Yeah, absolutely. One of the big questions that's coming out of community solar is how are developers going to be getting subscribers to it? So what is the process? Walk us through that, John, what the process is like for subscribers, and are there different methods like an upfront payment, or is there you know, a pay-as-you-go type of thing? There is. There, there are different methods, and, and actually you prompted me to remember the second point I was going to make is that we don't have any enabling legislation in the state of Michigan yet. We're working on that. That has a particular carve-out for community solar like you have in Minnesota, like you have in Illinois, and we, and we need that. We need to make that uh, happen in the next couple of years to make a distinction between what community solar is and is not, put some working definitions around it, put some expectations uh, of the utilities and of the participants of what they can see in terms of their financial investment and their payback. So I'm hoping with some good friends like Boat Solar and others, we can get that kind of thing to happen. I think um, what I would say is that the subscription approach, the, the consumer engagement approach is what we've done at least is we've really um, worked both with utilities and communities to use those as hubs to reach out to those customers they already have in the case of utilities or in the case of the city, reaching out to those constituents, those residents, those businesses that are already there. And by having those two partners, it helps to elevate the project because, well, people may not like their utility ne necessarily all that much. They might, um, but at least they know who they are and they trust them. And even though Michigan Energy Options has been around for 40 years and doing good work, 
you know, we're not necessarily a household name throughout the whole chain. So I think it's important to make sure you have good partners that are local partners to help the project going so you can get the, uh, the visibility of it up. But it's a lot of churn to try to get people to get interested, sign up, send you money, stay with the project. It, it can be a challenge. Now, that's one model in which, you know, it's an upfront, our model lease is an upfront payment for as much as you want of the project. Another model, which is one of the utilities in Michigan uses, is more of a kind of pay-as-you-go. It's essentially a premium price on your utility bill. And you're allowed you then at that point you're you're bought into uh, a community solar project of some of some consequence the debate i think in the industry is whether or not a community solar project really needs to have a payback in other words at you know 10 11 years out into the project your money is recouped in your energy savings and thus you're getting three green electrons going forward mm-hmm. but it'd be interesting to hear eric what his experiences have been in minnesota in comparison what I think from the outset had been a very popular idea of ownership of these projects, actually staying within the community, subscribers paying uh, and, and participating in the capital stack to get these projects off the ground. Um, what what has happened, and I think a lot of the, the regulated states, including you know Minnesota, obviously, and, and early states like uh, Colorado, is that the issues that we run into are related to the subscribers being able to, to, to come up with that capital and to be able to finance projects and then issues related to SEC and, um, and investment opportunities and who's considered to be a qualified uh, investor in these types of projects. And so rather than go, going through the brain damage, um, what most developers have done is to think about these projects as a typical commercial uh, installation and commercial solar financing where go out and and work with a third-party investor who can capitalize on the tax incentives. And so 99% of the projects in Minnesota are done via a pay-as-you-go model where the subscribers have no upfront liability to to pay for the the installation of the of the project. Now, um, there are some developers out there that have really interesting models, including a developer named um, Cooperative Energy Futures, and I'll throw a plug out there for them. Um, they're really trying to you know, figure out uh, ways in, in order to keep ownership of these projects within communities that where they are uh, developing. So there, uh, there's one really interesting uh, project in North Minneapolis at a church, um, Shiloh Temple, where uh, it's a 200 kilowatt system and all of the subscribers have an ownership stake where you know there's a financing period and then at the end of the financing period once the system has been fully paid off 100 percent of the benefits of that project are going to flow to the subscribers and i think that that's really a pioneering you know approach to uh, community solar Um, they also have a very vested and and uh, high focus on equity both environmental justice and, and racial equity and making sure that you know the the subscribers aren't limited uh, by credit score or um, you know other uh, kind of factors, and so I think we're going to see a ton more uh, in that space. You know, you can kind of see it with some of the the leanings and, and uh, I think issues that have been raised by the Green New Deal from a national level, making sure that there's inclusion, and a, a lot of states are trying to address that with community solar. Uh, and making sure that there are carve-outs for uh, low-income subscribers, for instance. Um, I think that I think that Illinois is really interesting. We're we're doing about uh, 15 megawatts of projects in uh, this kind of first round of of community solar down there. And uh, the the approach that they've chosen is to incentivize re- uh, with a carrot rather than um, kind of using a stick approach. 
to giving a higher rec value for high subscription or, or you know, 75% or 50% or more of subscriptions going to, to residents. Um, and, and then also, you know, their, their solar for all program, which, which incentivizes access for low income communities. So I, I think that um, we're, we're still, this is obviously a, a continuous, continuously evolving space. Uh, we'll see new um, business model innovations. And, and I think that a lot of that is going to be centered around uh, equity, uh, inclusion, and um, kind of small subscriptions. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I completely that's, that's agree. That's a trend that's, that's coming. I, I think what that ends up making it happen is that when everybody has a stake in it, it becomes more of a, a microgrid type of situation where people are all pooling their money to invest in something for themselves rather than simply the subscription offering a third-party you know, type of, of feel to it. I know we have a lot of that here where we have a deregulated market and you're able to you know, go really anywhere and everybody offers something different for it. Um, one question that I, I do have because it's kind of one of the myths that it goes around um, or you know, one of the, the, the hearsay, I guess you could call it, that happens around here is that some of what we've heard about community solar is that potentially people that are subscribing to it may not be seeing massive savings you know, on their utility. Walk me through, like, let's say I'm a homeowner and I sign up and I subscribe for community solar. You know, what does my payment look like? What, are, what does my savings look like? Yeah, so uh, from a homeowner standpoint, um, usually it's, it's a pretty simple offer. It's, it's typically a percentage discount to the, the bill credit that they're receiving, or it's, you know, a penny discount or, or a penny and a half. That can get much more complicated in kind of deregulated states, and, and we're, we've run into that in Illinois, where the bill credit value is derived from um, who supplies energy to, to that particular resident. It's just very, you know, very complicated. So I think as that market unfolds, we'll see, you know, what some of the pitfalls that, that some uh, subscribers are, are, are seeing. In, in Minnesota, we, which we've done uh, 100 megawatts of community solar in, in Minnesota that we've developed, um, nearly all of that has been commercial focused. And so we've worked with a, a lot of school districts municipalities, businesses, etc. I think one the the real challenge comes at the beginning. And so once once a subscriber signs their agreement, it can be anywhere from six to twelve to eighteen months before they start to see bill credits. Um, oh, wow. And then the way that the the program is structured, uh, and that's usually just based on kind of the construction cycle and where uh, we are at in, in the development. Um, uh, timeline. But, you know, once the project is turned on, there's even a lag of, of one month from the utility before they start to accumulate bill credits at that particular project. And then there's a one month lag until they actually see those credits on their bill. And then often at the beginning, there are discrepancies between what has been produced, um, you know, at the site um, and what we predicted and then what uh, Excel or the utility is actually providing in, in terms of value. And so there, there are some disconnects and, and kind of growing pains at the beginning that um, I think that, you know, we all hope for kind of a smooth takeoff, but it's, it's often a, a little bit bumpier um, than I think most of the stakeholders uh, would, would hope for. And, and so, you know, it's just working through those early issues and, and by no means would we be unique or, or uh, you know, our state be unique to that. I think that there's challenges um, that, that go along with rolling out programs uh, all across the country. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, John, I want to jump back to you for a second. You know, we talked a little bit about subscribers. So when you're gaining subscribers and you're signing people up for this, is that kind of thing that's happening all in-house? 
Well, in our case, we we did it all in house from soup to nuts for whatever reason. I, I've since learned, of course, there are companies that specialize in acquisition for community solar customers and have um, that machine kind of created. But we really we really did it all ourselves from the ground up and built it. And um, you know, we've been managing our our customers like we manage other utility customers that we work with. One of our couple of our large contracts are actually white labeled doing energy efficiency work, which is mandated by state law for the utilities. So we have a good re- reputation and relationship with utilities. We kind of know how they think and work, and we understand how you have to be very careful about private data of customers and all that. So we just kind of modified some of that work we had already been doing and put that to this to the solar park that we own and operate. We're also, for yeah. what it's worth, uh, through an LLC, we own and operate the um, project. And then my nonprofit is also the operation and maintenance company on this project, in part because we wanted to be responsible for it and make sure that it's working right. And we've been around for 40 years. We intend to be around for at least as long as the solar park is going to be in operation, which is 25. And I think there's some benefit to having, this is a shameless plug, but I think there's some benefit to having nonprofits involved with some of this kind of work. It kind of fits in our wheelhouse. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of what Community Solar is geared to also is nonprofit low income. So I, I completely agree with you. What do you think some of the growing pains were when it came to figuring out how to do subscribers? Well, people had never seen it in Michigan, really. There was one small project up north near where I am now today, but for the most part, people hadn't really heard of it, so you had to kind of do a lot of education. Um, There was also, to a certain extent, when we were bringing people online for the project, there was some skepticism that, you know, that it would get built, that it would happen for some delays, some other reasons that we ran into. So we had to kind of overcome that. We had some people saying, I would love to participate in this community solar park, but I'm going to do so once it's turned on. I'm not going to give you my money ahead of time. And our particular model was one that required about 80% of the money to be in escrow account. So then that would trigger the tax equity investor and that would trigger the capital stack so we could build it. And so we found ourselves, you know, kind of caught between in between because we had people who had given us their money we were sitting on and others who said they would be happy to buy into the project once it was up and running. So that was an unintended challenge to us, but we overcame it. Mm -hmm. So Eric, I would pose the same question to you. Yeah, and we're we're a smaller organization and really what our experience had been up up until uh, the point at which we started to develop community solar projects, which was probably 2014 timeframe, had really been geared towards commercial uh, right before that. And so we had a team that was specialized in working with school districts and municipalities uh, and, and other businesses already. And so it was a, it was a natural pivot or trans, uh, transition to saying, hey, we did, you know, 40 kilowatts on your roof or we did a couple hundred kilowatts. You know, that's only providing 10% of your load. And now there's an opportunity with this new program called Community Solar to do much more. And so it was, I think, you know, for us building that trust, we were a local company to Minnesota, um, building building trust with our with our customers and, and then offering kind of a, a pathway to doing more than what their roof would allow. And so... Mm-hmm. Uh, that was that was those were easy conversations to have with uh, commercial clients. On the residential side, um, it, it's a, it's a lot harder, right? Uh, subscription acquisition costs per watt uh, are just are just higher. I mean, you have to have uh, many more conversations. Uh, marketing costs uh, go go up. And so it's a different different ball game. And, and so there are there are companies uh, obviously that are specializing 
in doing that acquisition work. And, and I think that there's ways to, to leverage and, uh, you know, that the, those business models in ways that it's, it's, it's more difficult to do on commercial acquisition side. And so I think that there are, are plenty of, you know, businesses and uh, companies out there that, that do this work that have proven their, their business models. And, you know, we, are, we would be working with, with groups like that in areas that, that have high uh, residential participation like, an, like Illinois um, right. to help us with subscription acquisition because it is, it is a different ballgame. Uh, it's right. that uh, you know, our, our, One of our projects, it's only a 345-kilowatt system. When I say only, but it's, taking, it's a 1,000 panels. It's two acres. So it's right. <laughs> Physically, it's pretty pretty substantial, and we have 150 subscribers. I mean, most of those subscribers are residential customers. Mm-hmm. However, by far, there's a few real large commercial industrial, mostly commercial industrial um, customers that are taking you know some big chunks out of that project. And I think that reflects really how electricity is used in all of our communities. It tends to be the public institutions and the commercial industrials are the larger customers. So I, I'm fine with the model of having those kind of mixed in together. I think that, mm-hmm. that works for me. I think it also helps, like with Minnesota, I think it also helps to uh, reduce the risk of a project going forward in the sense if you have an anchor tenant established and then you only have to backfill so much to make the project whole. Right, right, absolutely. Talking a little bit about those, those commercial clients or subscribers there, Eric, did you get any kind of pushback from them to say, like, if they can do, say, a 10% offset by installing rooftop solar, that they weren't wanting to do more because of a little bit of reduced savings they'd be seeing? Yeah, I think the, the conversation is harder, especially because a typical contract term is 25 years. And, um, you know, that, that obviously differs from state to state and, and program to program. But a 25-year agreement Nobody knows what the energy landscape is going to look like in 25 years, let alone uh, 10 years from now. And to, for people to take that leap of faith is a considerable ask. And I think that th- that's probably the, the, the largest hurdle. Um, the, other, the other part to it, too, and, and we get some nuance here, is, is that we, we may be uh, midlife on a roof, and, and um, the program restricts your ability to participate in either on-site or, or community solar um, to 120% of your, your usage. And so we have seen groups you know, withhold a portion of their, of their community solar commitment in anticipation that, that they'll install on-site solar in the future. And, and I think that that's a smart approach um, for, for organizations as well. Uh, and and it, it's not, you know, it's not going to be the right fit at the right time. We also just need groups to say, hey, we only want to, um, you know, commit 25% to community solar um, because that gives us options in the future. We're not, we're not kind of, you know, pigeonholing ourselves to, to, to participate in this project or program for uh, the long term. So I, I think there's, there's a healthy amount of skepticism, uh, you know, within, within the program, and, and that's related to, you know, market dynamics and what the future holds. And, and um, we don't, I, I definitely don't, you know, hold that against any, anybody. Um, I think that, that hedging kind of your, your energy mix is, is probably a, a good thing. And um, we're happy to help find the right solution for, for those folks and, you know, whatever makes sense. Yeah, I'll point to Michigan Energy Options ourselves. We are a lead platinum certified building. We got that in 2012, and we've had solar on in the site of our building for a lot of years. We also had, per the community solar park, 
a number of panels donated to us from Friends of Michigan Energy Options. So the combination thereof has us probably 80 percent now powered by solar. And they're different. And they're different animals. I mean, you know, the one on site, we've got inverters and we've had inverters break. We've had some maintenance things we've had to, to do. We're very proud to have it there, but it isn't for everybody. And similarly, you know, the community solar park, even though it's about a mile away from us, you know, isn't something we look at every day, but we know it's there. And I think ideally it's a combination of those two things for businesses or residential that might really be kind of a sweet spot. Yeah, as long as it's yeah. close enough that you, know, you could go by and see it, still be able to get the uh, you know, kind of the warm fuzzies of, of having that extra power is, is kind of important for a lot of people, and I think it's a it's a big part of what makes community solar and you know, what it is. Yeah, in our one in our one project in East Lansing, you know, it has some value added to it, including that we've got a nice um, sculpture of public art there. We have signage we're putting up that's educational signage. We'll have tours of the site for community members and students, and we're also planting pollinator species and native grasses on the site. So we're doing habitat restoration, and all this is located on a former cap landfill. So we're taking what was a true liability from the city of East Lansing and turning it into something that's an asset for the 21st century, and I think that's a good story. Mm -hmm. Eric, do you guys get a lot of brownfield and marginal land development with your community solar as well? You know, we, we don't as much. Um, you, you know, I think we're markets where they're incentivizing, um, uh, you know, land use, you know, proper land land use that you'll, you'll see a lot more of it. And I'm, I'm thinking maybe of uh, Massachusetts and, and some of these other states that have kind of brownfield uh, incentives. Um, but we certainly are talking with the landowners and, and, and identifying typically the, the area, if it's an eight acre or 40 acre spot, you know, the, the landowner is going to know, hey, you know, this area over here is pretty unproductive. Um, you know, it's a, it's a hay field or it's, it's uh, you know, marginal land. You know, I'd love to place this system over here. We work with them, their neighbors, um, to make sure that, uh, you know, everybody's considerations are, are coming into account when we cite these, these projects. And so to the extent that they're, you know, maybe brownfields, but they, you know, we, we definitely try to, um, you know, be sensitive to, to those um, to those land use issues because it is something that that suddenly comes up. Minnesota's a pioneer in the whole co-locating of solar with ag. You guys should yeah. think about work with Fresh Energy and Rob Davis and some of these folks where, you know, if you are going to be building some solar projects in the land and it's, if it's prime agricultural land and you plant pollinators with it or graze sheep underneath it, in fact, Michigan taking its cue from Minnesota recently through an executive order from our governor is opening up some of our prime ag lands to potential solar development with the stipulation that that land is returned back to its original state once the project is over with mm -hmm. 20 years down the road. And also um, strongly encouraging the location of pollinators with that, with those solar farms. So I think there's win-wins for everybody in these kinds of projects. Absolutely. Shout out to Rob Davis for sure. I mean, he, he's the pioneer in, in how, um, in, in pollinator-friendly habitat and, um, uh, you know, watch his TED talk. I mean, you won't see anybody more excited about uh, bees and solar than than him. And um, but yeah, uh, all of our community solar sites, which now I think we're approaching um, a thousand acres of sites, and um, all of them have have pollinator habitat planted beneath the panels. And and so uh, I think you mentioned uh, too, John, that I think one of the next phases is, is sheep and, and, you know, other grazers, uh, probably not goats who jump on the panels and crack them and whatever. But certainly I think that that is a, a you know, the next phase 
Yeah, I agree. I agree. So we could definitely go back and forth a lot, every state, and are shouting on our governors and our, our lawmakers. But, you know, I'm getting the, the cue to be wrapping up here. So I want to thank you guys so much uh, for joining. We had a really great conversation, and we'd love to have you on again. Tell our listeners and everybody where they can find you. Yeah, so our website is ips-solar.com. Um, they can reach me on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash in slash Eric Posse, um, or on Twitter at Eric Posse, which is E-R-I-C-P-A-S-I. And love to talk with uh, anybody that, that's kind of sharing passion for renewables and, and community solar. And um, absolutely thank you, uh, Ryan and, and John, for the, for the conversation. I want to echo um, Eric's appreciation. Thank you for having us. This has been a great conversation. Let's uh, continue with others. Um, you can find Michigan Energy Options web at michiganenergyoptions.org. You can also take a look at our uh, project website for the East Lansing Community Solar Park, and that is micommunitysolar.org. So there's a play on words there with Michigan and my. And, and then also you can find me through those sites as well because my email and contact information is all there. I love it. Well, yeah, again, thank you guys and all listeners out there. Make sure that you subscribe, rate, review, and uh, appreciate our two guests today at letting everybody know what's up with Community Solar. Thank you. Let the sun shine. Thank you.